0: Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to the website lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be at that website. And if you also just want to look down at the description, everything else I'm going to mention in this introduction is going to be down there as well. If you would like to support this work, there's a few ways to do that. Of course, you can just subscribe to this podcast. I have it on numerous streaming platforms, so if any of those are your uh, preferred places to listen to podcasts, please subscribe and share from there. If there's anybody you know in your life that would benefit from these episodes, from these interviews, and the topics that are discussed in them, please feel free to share. That would be really, really helpful. If you'd like to support this project monetarily, there's a couple ways to do that. The first is through the PayPal link by going to paypal.me slash you can treat that a bit like a tip jar. So if this episode in particular or or any other episode that you've listened to you thought was particularly good or or worth. A donation, please throw a few dollars my way. That would be really, really helpful. And if you'd like to support this work more regularly, you really want to sustain this work, you can do so through Patreon. You go to patreon.com slash last born in the wilderness. And there you can make monthly contributions to the production of this podcast. You can do as little as a dollar a month or more. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to these interviews before the official public release. And there's a few other extras that I throw on that page as well. And I really just want to thank the patrons, the people that have been sustaining this work that have been supporting this work for however long you've you've been doing it uh it just means really just means everything i mean it's so humbling, I guess or, or something like that that uh you know people choose to support this work you know there's this is an ad free sponsor free podcast this is totally a work of passion, something I care very deeply about, so every interview I do ultimately is going to be publicly available. But I just like to give patrons a little early access to thank them for supporting this work. If you would like to drop me a line, so I have this thing set up where if you call this phone number, you can leave a message up to three minutes, and I can include it at the beginning of the podcast. If you want to do that, it's 208 918 2837. That is 208 918 2837. I've received some really great calls, some really great feedback from people. If you don't want it to be included in the podcast, you just want to send me a message. That's a good way to do it. And I also just want to say that if you are outside the United States and you want to uh, send me an audio message, but you don't want to call the line because obviously it's expensive. If you're outside the United States, it could be rather expensive to to call an American phone number. Uh, I have other ways that we could do that. I have a Dropbox. I have various other means. I can request a file from you through Dropbox. So if you contact me through the contact form on the website, Uh, You can find my information there, and we can work something out. So I just wanted to throw that out there. So thank you all so much for listening to me up to this point. Here's the episode. In this episode, I speak with psychedelic scholar, editor, publisher, and researcher, Robert Forte. I've spoken with Robert previously on the podcast. I had an episode with him last year. I became aware of him because I I believe it was because of an episode of another podcast, I think titled Psychedelics Today, I think is the name of the podcast. And, uh, you know, that interview that he did with them was really, really fascinating. So I asked him, of course, to be on the podcast, and we ended up getting into his perspective on psychedelics and the psychedelic renaissance, as it's been called. Uh, which is, of course, this resurgent interest in American and Western cultures in particular in psychedelic use. So, whether it's for therapy or whether it's for cognitive exploration, right, like you're just interested in exploring your own consciousness and the consciousness that we're all ultimately tied in with, psychedelics can help facilitate that exploration. It's, it's a really profound tool in that, in that exploration. I think many, many people are, are obviously becoming increasingly curious about psychedelic use but what we get at in this episode in particular, what I discussed also in the previous episode with Robert and why I wanted to talk to him again, is I wanted to further explore the the direction psychedelic interest is going in. So, psychedelic experimentation, psychedelic clinical trials, the various organizations, the various interested parties, I should say, that are interested in psychedelics becoming more mainstream, right? Our culture is going through a pretty profound shift right now where we're starting to somewhat become aware of the various crises that we're in the midst of. And a lot of those are social crises, right? The, the, the fact that so many people are anxious and depressed. I mean, how many people in your life do you know that are trying to grapple with trauma, trying to grapple with the overwhelming pressures of work life, the overwhelming pressures of just being in this time and place that we're in right now? And so, of course, people are looking for something to help alleviate those anxieties, alleviate those traumas, to work through those traumas. And psychedelics have kind of come up at that moment when our society is experiencing all of these major crises. Uh, Psychedelic use can elicit certain profound realizations within the individual. As Timothy Leary says, you know, it can really be the catalyst for real social change. It really can within the individual and on the collective level. But as we're seeing with the psychedelic renaissance right now, obviously a lot of headway is being made by various organizations like MAPS and various scientific researchers and clinical psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists and people that are looking at, say, MDMA as being used for therapy to help people work through their trauma. And by no means am I diminishing that, that promise, that possibility, that, that very real win, as it were, for psychedelic use. But we have to examine the broader context in which psychedelics are being uh, used, and we also have to analyze the underlying motivations of of various interested parties in promoting psychedelics. And this is where Robert comes in. Robert is somebody that I have a great deal of respect for. I think he he provides very necessary insights and uh, you know counter arguments, I guess you could say, to kind of balance this sort of naive and overly optimistic perspective that so many people have within the psychedelic community, which is that psychedelics on their own are a good thing, and that regardless of how they're being used and how they're being promoted, the goodness of the psychedelic experience will win out. And I have to agree with Robert on this point. That has never been the case. Psychedelics are a tool that could be used for good, but also can be used to facilitate social engineering and mind control, even, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. It gets into this sort of strange territory where you start to look at various government uh, you know, operations like MKUltra. Uh, you go back to the early days of, of, of psychedelic interests in the United States, and a lot of that was hyped up by the media for a very specific purpose, uh, which, you know, depending on how far you want to go down that rabbit hole, gives you this understanding that psychedelics have always been complicated for any culture that they're a part of. You know, they have to be respected on their own terms. And when they exist within, again, a a context like the society that we're in, psychedelics can be used for all kinds of devious purposes. One devious purpose, or or one, I would say, kind of cynical purpose, is to just make money, right? And that's something that Robert's spoken up about regarding MAPS and how they're kind of promoting this idea that, you know, MDMA and, and other psychedelics can be used for therapy, but you have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in order to get that therapy. You know, this isn't, uh, you know, psychedelic therapy for the masses. This is psychedelic therapy for those that are willing to pay up. Now, as you're going to hear in this interview, as we go down this rabbit hole of, of inquiry into the roots of this, uh, Robert and I get to a point where we start to talk about conspiracy theory. And I just want to really make it very clear that while I agree with Robert in sort of a very broad sense, I don't agree with every single claim that he makes in this interview. And I want to say this very respectfully to Robert. We we hashed this out in this interview. I really hope that it's understood by those that are listening to this episode. There's certain things I do agree with, certain things that I don't agree with regarding what we would call, quote, conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. And I had to kind of ask him certain pointed questions, I think, to define my differences with him. So I just want to make it very clear that I don't fully endorse Robert's views. While I respect him very deeply, while I agree with him in great part on many of the the ideas that he brings up, I don't agree with every single point that he makes towards the end of this interview, and I just want to make that very very clear because we get into some pretty swampy territory. And this kind of gets into the whole difficulty of trying to navigate through all the information that we now have at our disposal, right? Uh, we have the internet, we have all of this these a- access to all these various stories and various forms of information. And we have to really be able to discern what is real and what isn't. And and I have to admit, there's a lot of things that I just don't know. And I am willing to rest in that, that not knowing, right? That ambiguity, that sort of gray zone of not knowing what really is happening. I think we need to be more comfortable in that space, especially now in a time of uh, of just of, of confusion. I mean, we're in a very confusing and perplexing time. As Robert says, you know, we're in the post-truth era, as it's been described. I don't know if that's a fully accurate uh, description of the time we're in, but I, I get it. I think we all understand that it's it's like everybody has these sort of narratives and propaganda and various stories that they tell. People are emotionally coerced, emotionally manipulated into believing certain things because it makes sense to them. That doesn't mean it's true. If you want to learn more about Robert, I have some stuff down in the description. You can follow him on Facebook. Uh, that's really kind of his blog, as he described as kind of where he posts a lot of his uh, ideas and you know articles and things like that. You can go there. He's also the author of several books. I'll put links to that down in the description as well. And uh, also providing a link to that article that we mentioned in here from Marine Corps Times, and I'll also provide a link to the 1956 Life Magazine photo essay by Gordon Wasson, so you can kind of look at that as well and get a, get a, get a grasp on that. And I'll probably provide some other links regarding other things that we discussed in this episode as well, so people can kind of research these topics for themselves. Yeah, thank you so much for listening to me up to this point. Here is my interview with Robert Forte. Robert, it's good to talk to you again, man. Thank you for uh, coming on the podcast again.
1: Likewise, thank you. Always always enjoy talking with smart people.
0: <laughs> it's, uh, I don't want to sound like an elitist, which I'm sure I'm going to sound a little bit like that. But, uh, part of the reason why I started this podcast is because I wanted to meet and uh, talk with people about these types of subjects. Right. And so I, I guess I could say the same. It's good to talk with, uh, other people that are smart and kind of understand what's going on and are exploring really interesting, uh, topics. So yeah, I completely, uh, I, I, I feel that way totally. Um, I can sometimes feel a bit isolated, uh, where I'm at occasionally. So it's good to uh, reach out to people like you. Um,
1: yeah, the smarter you are, the more isolated you are in a sense. And, uh, and we have a, we have a, a kind of daunting task ahead of us here to to critique this psychedelic renaissance that is just raging all around, no matter where you go, throughout Europe, in the United States, you know, in the urban areas, you're up there in Idaho, we're just inundated with media that is promoting these psychedelic drugs, you know, putting forward what they call scientific research which is not really scientific research it's really advertising and advocacy from a small group of people that either have political or <clears throat> psychological or <clears throat> emotional needs for their career their country their bank account and they're putting forward these drugs and um And there's just an incredible wave of enthusiasm behind this. And um, it's very complicated because on the one hand, there are, as we both know, and I think we discussed in our last podcast, many really remarkable benefits and uses to these drugs. But there's also a very large shadow that is being overlooked to the detriment of the world public as they um as they set out to follow this advertising and to consume these drugs, and so I think it's up to a, you know a, a, an increasing group of people to point this out and to and to really uh take note of what's going on here
0: yeah absolutely it's um I've had that task in multiple fronts in multiple subjects come up in the past year where certain assumptions that I had about certain things were challenged. And uh, you, and in that episode I did with you the first time we talked, um, that was one of those things where I had a lot of naivete or a lot of um, kind of yeah naive ideas about psychedelic research and the direction that it's going to go in. Um, I had this idea that it's really obvious that psychedelics are a really valuable tool for therapy, for helping people overcome trauma, um, allows them to break down ideological constructs and, you know, opens their mind and all the the, the various features of psychedelic, uh, the psychedelic experience that I think could be of benefit, right? Because that's how I experienced it. That's how when I took, you know, mushrooms however many years ago and I had these massive trips that really opened me up to new ways of thinking and feeling and being, um I assumed that that would be the motivation of everybody that was interested in psychedelics would be to create um something like an elevation of, of consciousness or something right like like that would be the obvious direction that it would go in um and as you stated in that first episode and and, and since then you know you mentioned uh, an author named um uh Stephen Siff I believe and he I'm trying to remember the name of the uh the episode but he wrote a book about media hype and how the media, when psychedelics first came on the scene in popular culture in the 1950s, 1960s, you know, psychedelics were branded. They were branded as this sort of countercultural, anti-war, um, mind-expanding thing,
1: right? But, no, we have to go. We have to go back a little bit further, even because, further than that. Yeah, but this is a very important point that you're mentioning here: the branding of psychedelic drugs. And it's and I think we ought to take a moment and look at the stages of the branding. And and um, and and Stephen Stiff's book, Acid Hype, he's a he's a professor of journalism or communication studies at um, I believe the University of Wisconsin. Okay, that's a that's a very, very important book because um, it shows that the popularizing of psychedelic drugs beginning in the nineteen fifties it was not it was not by a group of you know um conscientious, soulful, spiritually oriented, health conscious people that were that were foisting these drugs onto the world public. It was, as SIF points out scientifically, it was largely through the media empire of a guy named Henry Luce. Okay, now this is where you know, S- Sif's book, I've gone through these, st- you know, I was very, very involved in this subject, and I and I still am, and I've gone through these different stages myself, and uh, over the past 10 or 15 years, there's been kind of a, an undoing of the common narrative, and um, and this book by Stephen Siff is one of them, because it shows so clearly that the psychedelic drugs were introduced to the culture by Henry Luce. Now, who is Henry Luce? You know, people have to, you have to step back and look at Henry Luce and the other things that he did and who his associates were, right? Now, Henry Luce was, a, was an arch-fascist, right? He was a guy who was backing Mussolini and Adolf Hitler, and he was, he's a Skull and Bones uh, member, right? And he is um, an elitist, uh, he is, um, he is, um, he's, um, you know, right in there in the inner circle of, um, the American fascist movement, not interested in democracy, interested in the wealthy controlling the population. And, um, and he, he and a small group of people got wind of these drugs and saw them as an opportunity to bring about to use them in mind control, to use them in a fashion very much like what Aldous Huxley um, kind of prophesized or predicted or, and really in very significant ways helped to bring about a brave new world where, where people get um, sort of like fairy dust thrown in their eyes. They become self-absorbed. They become happified to use a word that one of my teachers, Houston Smith, put out there. You know, like, just make people happy. If they're happy, they're not going to revolt. They're not going to really pay very close attention to how the Commonwealth is being controlled by an ever smaller number of people. So, you know, that's really important to look at. Henry Luce was one, and even Timothy Leary said this, that Henry Luce did more to popularize psychedelic drugs than anybody else. Serious students of this subject need to really take note of that. So, to to go back to what you said, the first branding of psychedelic drugs was that they were tools in being developed in psychiatry that would make people, you know, wiser, more creative. Uh, They would they would heal. um, They would treat alcoholism they had this um this remarkable power to um to center people and to make them more creative and more wonderful and the counterculture branding of psychedelics came a little bit later and that was really through the activities of my old friend Timothy Leary that was a, that was a different shift and um and what we're seeing now is a shift back to the original loose and um, establishment branding of psychedelic drugs. To me, this is extremely fascinating when you look at like the microdosing trend that's going on now, right? And, um, you know, no longer is it, as Leary put it, and we're going to return to Leary, Leary put it, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out of this false socially constructed military industrial complex determined reality. And start your own religion. Leary, Leary reframed psychedelic drugs, and this was and this undermined the movement of the social engineers of Henry Luce, the Skull and Bones, the CIA, um, and um, and this I believe it upset their plans. Now, psychedelic drugs are coming back, but it's not turn on, tune in, drop out. It's not question authority. It's microdosing LSD is going to make you a better worker. It's, it's going to treat depression, right? It's going to make you more productive. It's going to make you more ca- capable. It's going to make you a, a better cog in this, in this society, which is catapulting itself off a cliff, Right. And one of the things that, that prompted our, our discussion today was this article that you saw and sent me. That LSD is also going to make you a better soldier. The military is going to use LSD now to, to uh, conquer the world, ever more in ever more creative ways. Right? And that's just that's just really really fascinating and and not really critically examined enough by by scholars and activists in this field.
0: Yeah, that uh that uh article I sent you was published um on a website called com, and the title of it is Can LSD and magic mushrooms help win wars? This mar- this marine officer says yes. Now, this article was shared on the MAPS Facebook page, so the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, I believe is is the uh Title. Yeah. So they're at the forefront. They're the nonprofit organization that is at the forefront of getting um, scientific or clinical trials done on various psychedelic compounds like MDMA, um, LSD, psilocybin, ketamine, all these different compounds. And for the longest time, including my, you know, for me, I, I thought like, okay, this in and of itself is a good thing. You know, getting the stick, taking the stigma off of taking psychedelics for therapy. Um, for any, for any use at all, like if you just want to take it for your own psychonautic explorations, you know, like taking that stigma off of it, and it by any means necessary is uh, at least to my understanding for a long time was like, that's a good thing. And then they, and I had that conversation with you last year. And then I've had several other discussions on this podcast with individuals that have reshaped my understanding of psychedelic uh, use a little bit. And, um, and then this article again was shared on the MAPS page. And I mean, it's essentially about a, a Marine, uh, an individual who wrote this paper that was promoting this idea of using, of microdosing psychedelics to make soldiers more efficient at analyzing data um, and just basically to be more efficient soldiers um, because he was citing like, oh, Silicon Valley is doing it. Silicon Valley executives, these people in the tech industry, they're taking advantage of microdosing. Um, they're seeing you know, that their focus is improved. They're more efficient workers. Um, it helps them keep up with the demand that is of course a part of being a part of the workforce there. Um, and instead of relying on drugs like Adderall or other stimulants, which have their downsides, LSD and psilocybin and the like, if you take them at very small doses, can improve without give, give improve your ability to focus and to work without that you know that problematic mind expanding quality, consciousness expanding quality that you get when you take a little too much of it. It's, it's, (laughs) it's like, and then I saw MAPS do this and I was reading the comments of under this post and people are like, there was a combination of things like, MAPS, why are you sharing this? Hopefully, you know, you're not serious. And then the other people were like, oh, any, any opportunity that, you know, if any soldier takes LSD, they're automatically going to become enlightened as a result of it. And I just had to roll my eyes, like, Ma- yeah, you know, that's not what's happening.
1: <laughs> Wait, Patrick, I'm sorry. Hold on a second. Okay. So, um all right, so this is all really juicy stuff and like I said it's daunting to kind of take <laughs> it apart. I think we probably discussed on the last podcast that I have a very long history with um Rick Doblin and who's the founder of Maps and watched that um that whole scam sort of um unfold over the past um gosh, it's nearly 40 years now, 37 years, I think. But um, let me see, where did I want to go here? Ah, yes. um, Back to Henry Luce and Mind Control. One of the the notions that Henry Luce, um, uh, he didn't invent it, it was already part of the lexicon, this concept of American exceptionalism. Mm. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So American exceptionalism is this idea that Americans are special that they that they live you know in this uh, magical place and we have all this opportunity and democracy and freedom and uh, Henry Luce wrote a very very important paper in in one in Life magazine I believe it was and published in 1934 called The American Century and it was kind of a blueprint for how um, his globalists were going to um, set about taking over the world, using this concept of American exceptionalism, that it was our duty, because we're so special, to invade other countries with our particular brand of corporate capitalism disguised as democracy and freedom, and we had to police the world. And this was the justification for a lot of the, the the imperialistic wars and invasions and assisting, getting the American people to buy this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then, quite an, quite a few years later, in 1991, another paper was prepared called. Um, by by a group called The Project for the New American Century. Mm -hmm. Do you know this document? Yeah,
0: it's it's kind of a blueprint for the neocons. Is that right?
1: Yeah, Yeah. so it's taken from Henry Luce's 1934 publication, The American Century, which worked quite well. So this was for the new American century, for the century that begins in 2000 which is really, you know, it can, it's a blueprint for the neocons. It's the, it's, you know, it talks about the new Pearl Harbor, right? The whole 9-11, you know, scam on the American people. And then it was our obligation to, you know, protect the world. And so this notion of American exceptionalism, I've been thinking about a, a new phrase, and I've even heard some of my, my colleagues um, in the field of psychedelics use it now, psychedelic exceptionalism. And this is one of the sort of, you know, psychological diseases that psychedelics cause this kind of inflated selfhood, where people like you just said, people think, oh, well, you know, if you take LSD, you're going to become enlightened, implying that, well, I've taken LSD, and I'm enlightened, right? So although there's this actual association of LSD and or other psychedelics and spiritual awakening, sometimes, in very rare cases, I have to say, mostly what happens is that people get this kind of inflated sense of themselves. We talk about, you know, ego dissolution. but What happens more often with LSD and, and psychedelics and people that use them is their ego actually becomes inflated. Oh, well, I can even access God. Mm. Kind of
0: mm-hmm. it shows
1: a very, very naive uh, and a, a misunderstanding about what spiritual practice and enlightenment really is, as again, Houston Smith, one of my important teachers and a very, very wise man, you know once said that, yes, psychedelic drugs can cause religious experiences, but what we're really looking at here, what we really want to develop is a religious life. And psychedelic drugs abort that quest more readily than they further it. And so there's all this language going on about psychedelics causing spiritual experience. When we really look carefully and more critically at this, they actually abort a spiritual approach to life. And the evidence for that, again, is here, look at this, you know, people want to use it to fight better wars, I mean, if you're really spiritually oriented and have a kind of religious awakening, you're not going to be fighting wars.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, You know, since we spoke last, I had a, this sort of reminds me of, um, I had another interview with uh, an individual named Kevin Tucker, and he had published a book uh, titled uh, The Coal of Personality, and he explores uh, the ways in which the ayahuasca tourism industry has become like the newer version or a a more modern version of the extractivism and the colonialism uh, that has been practiced in South and Central America since Europeans first arrived. So, he traces, um, you know, of course, when uh, Europeans first arrived in the Amazon region um, and colonized uh, through, of course, missionaries and in all of that um, and the horrible cruelties that came with that. And then he gets into the rubber boom and how that process uh, worked as well and debt peenage and and everything that came with that. And then he then moves into how how ayahuasca, as we understand it to be, and how it's practiced in, say, Peru, that region, how that really came about as a result of colonization, that the way in which it emerged is a combination of some sort of Christian or Catholic beliefs mixed in with some indigenous practices, and that the, the use of ayahuasca in the form that it is used in today is in great part a response to the traumas that were uh, experienced by the indigenous populations in that region. And he starts that book discussing a, a, a healer named uh, Olivia Olivaro. Um, and she was a eighty one year old woman I believe uh, who last year was killed by a Canadian man who came down to supposedly he wanted to collect all these various uh, uh, cultural practices and how these healers used ayahuasca and he wanted to take that back up to Canada and start some healing centers. supposedly his intention was to help with addicts and all of that, um, but he ended up shooting. This elder, this woman in this community, um, he was subsequently lynched, and this became an international story because of that. Um, Anyway, the point is, is that through that book and by tracing that murder and tying it into this long historical process of colonization, he's showing how the ayahuasca tourism industry is like a really commercialized version of whatever the indigenous... Spiritual practices in that region actually are, and that they're catering to Western interests in that practice. And so much of it is very theatrical and very like, this is how Westerners think it's supposed to, you know, how a shamanic experience is supposed to play out. And, um, you know, what it turns into is basically kind of a a hedonistic, like um, very Western centric thing, right? Westerners go down to Peru indigenous people administer the psychedelic brew. They think they're having this really indigenous spiritual experience and they come back and they do some social media posts about it and they go back to their jobs and they just continue on as if everything is fine. It's like, there's multiple things happening right now where psychedelics, whether it's from the kind of an indigenous perspective or whether it's purely a Western, you know, perspective, um, there's a lot of cultural appropriation, spiritual extractivism um, there's also the co-option as you've mentioned by uh, you know the the movement going from kind of a trying to raise maybe consciousness or awareness or try to break down ideological constructs um, and become something that is then used to make the working people, workers more efficient, uh, make soldiers more efficient. It's just like it's being co-opted. And maybe we could argue, like you just pointed to, from the very beginning, it was always intended to do this. (laughs) And that's the trip. That's the real trip.
1: Yep, it's very tricky. I think we probably talked about this the last time, how the psychedelic phenomena is really a microcosm of the history of religion because religion Mm -hmm. is um like this too and i really appreciate you mentioning kevin tucker who i have not seen for many years but i have a lot of respect for him and he's a very very smart and very conscientious person who like me appreciates the power of these medicines the positive power of these medicines but has no choice because of his awakened nature to you know, step back from this field and to look at these shadow aspects in a, in a very intelligent way. Yes, Kevin is a is a super enthusiastic and great scholar and activist. And you're and reminding me to get back in touch with him and check in. And so, and the ayahuasca thing, I, I don't recall if we talked about this one, but um, I have a lot of experience there. Also, I made you know quite a quite a few trips to Peru, uh, starting in the early. Uh, like 2003, and uh, drawn there initially by, um, by uh, a case where a, a person, someone I knew, was dramatically, kind of miraculously cured of a very deadly cancer. Western oncologists here, you know, mm-hmm. given three months to live. And he went down there on, on the advice of uh, a mutual friend, Terence McKenna, to um, experience this ayahuasca. He went down there to die, to get ready to die. And he came back after two months drinking ayahuasca every other day, completely cured. So I wanted to do a kind of a follow-up with this and see, wow, maybe we can learn something, you know, really important. And I started taking cancer patients down there and found some positive results. But within, within just a very few years, this, you know, ayahuasca became like big news. And started just becoming so popular down there. And like shamans were popping up like Burger Kings. And um, and this whole ayahuasca tourism thing took off. And I realized, my God, you know, this is, um, I don't want to be contributing to this at all. And um, now we've just seen it like really just run wild. And these these groups like the, you know, the Santa Daime or the or the uh de vegetal you know these combined you know weird concoctions of the cult of christianity you know with this cult of ayahuasca and they're promoting this you know authoritarian cults you know laden with superstitions and getting people so stoned on these drugs that they will believe almost anything and um and, and uh, you know, again, I think for serious students of this subject to really look deeply and critically, like Kevin is, and uh, Stephen Beyer is another very important ayahuasca um, uh, scholar who's, you know, gotten very deeply involved and has also kind of taken a step back uh, from the phenomenon, looking at certain evidence, like the promotion of this drug as some ancient spiritual elixir. But it's not an ancient spiritual lecture, as you just mentioned, and Kevin has pointed out, and Stephen Beyer points out. It's a relatively new concoction that comes about um, as a result of colonialism, that these people are looking for ways to, to, um, I like this metaphor, throwing fairy dust in the eyes of the population. And um, and it's, it's almost hilarious that this that this substance that's been used for, for a very long time in South America to, is a medical practice to 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 rid the body of parasites. For God's sakes, it makes you puke and shit. <laughs> and now you've got like thousands of Americans going, people from Europe going down there to cure their existential crises. You know, going down into these places where they haven't even figured out what to do with their sewage. And we're looking to them as like they're they're you know these enlightened beings. It's a recapitulation of what we saw in the in the 50s, where you know people are flocking to India. Like suddenly we think these Indian gurus have this spiritual power, which is really just more a kind of testimony to the the spiritual hunger and the and the. The paucity of real spiritual experience in our own culture that we project it out onto others and run around the world looking for it. It's right here, really. It just takes some kind of work to get to it.
0: Yeah, that, that kind of has opened me up to certain questions of like, you know, understanding the historical processes that have led people to the moment they're in now where I, I don't blame people. For having that spiritual hunger, you're just dis- you're discussing. You know why is it that Westerners, and I'm speaking very generally here, but people say here in the United States or in in uh, the Western world more generally, like what is why do we feel this yearning or this hollowness in our own spiritual? lives like why do we feel that we have to go all the way down to peru in order to have a genuine experience why do we have to go to india to supposedly have a spiritual experience why do we have to go to all these so-called exotic places and and experience it through you know this sort of tourism almost you know why does it have to be that way what it I mean, I have some answers, I guess, or some ideas as to why that's the case, but that still doesn't change the fact that people are seeking something that I think is very real and very legitimate. I mean, people really do have this hunger and there's a good reason for it. Now, my my thing is like, people are like, okay, you, you're poo-pooing the idea of going down to Peru and having that experience there and you're saying, don't take ayahuasca <laughs> or, you know, don't do this thing or don't do that thing. Uh, well, then what's the alternative? This is a a materialist or a consumer culture and it's going to be hollow it's always been hollow what do we do in response to that you know and and i and i honestly don't have a a great answer for that uh that question right now
1: well there's not a there's not a short answer um it's a it's a huge question and it has to a person has to take a little time and and be patient to really look at like the first part of it why why is there this spiritual hunger in western society well you know i think to answer that question we have to look at the at the theology that has pretty much informed western spirituality for the last couple thousand years you know the mainstream monotheistic um uh theologies that underlie this uh capitalist capitalist system that we have i mean one of the really important books here Um, Is, of course, Max Weber's book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of of Capitalism, where he makes, um, you know, he makes the point very clearly. It's like this this Western theology where, you know, like what's God? Well, you know, God is this guy way up there in the clouds and he's kind of far away from us. And we are we are here infected with this kind of original sin and that, and that somehow we have to um, we have to atone for sins that we are you know laden with to this punishing God that's way up there in the in the sky, and whether you're whether you're from a, a Jewish tradition or any one of the varieties of Christianity, you know that's mostly the theology that defines our our culture and our whole religious systems here, and it's kind of screwy, and so. Um, you know, the, the the religious impulse, as you said a moment ago, is a healthy one. It's just that we don't really have a proper framework or a, a set of practices in our culture. You have to look they're in there, you have to look for them, you have to kind of work for them, but they're there. But you know, if you if you grew up in a in a kind of ordinary, normal, mainstream American or European family, most likely you're infected with this peculiar theology that is that is kind of robs the person of their own spirituality, and so it makes sense that people are hungry and looking for something, and um, and then you know they these. Engineers like luce as I said, you know, they throw these drugs at you, offering a quick fix, and it's um, it, it's perfectly understandable that people would flock to them.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's. I think people often don't recognize that we exist within the context of a mass society, right? Like we forget that mass societies on the scale that we're in now are, are rather, at least in the the scope of human history, are rather recent. And that the same drives that um, that our ancestors had, which were in completely different cultural contexts, I would argue, um, those same drives are being um, are still there, and they're being taken advantage of, but within the context of a nation state or a mass religion, you know, a, a gigantic organization in which we're meant to feel like we're a part of a community. But those communities are imagined, they're concocted for us. And we're supposed to, you know, feel this sort of connection to what a million, like, am I supposed to actually feel this direct connection to 350 million Americans, you know, like, we're all the same, and we're a part of a community? We're not, you know. <laughs> um, and I don't think human beings are meant to operate on that level. So it makes sense that there would be individuals that would, in a, in a way, engineer these sort of hollow solutions, right? And um, and and you know to kind of point to uh, another um, thing that I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if we talked about it before at all, but you know you sent me this post, uh, which was the sixty second. It was apparently it's the sixty second anniversary of the article that started the psychedelic movement, uh, which was published in Life Magazine, I believe. Um, and well. Sorry.
1: Yeah, yes. Life magazine. Life magazine. And Gordon Wasson were pals.
0: Yeah, and you know, could you explain a little bit of 'cause you you had the really unique opportunity to to really get into the records of Gordon Wasson um and sort of un- understand like who he really was and what his motivations were Um, and all of that, uh, what, what, what really surprised you? What is something about Gordon Wasson that no one really appreciates or understands, I guess? Okay.
1: but this is another one of the, the, the turning points in my own, um, perspective uh, in this field of psychedelics. And you're right. You know, when I was first getting interested in this subject in the late 1970s and early eighties, there was, um, there was uh, nothing really going on in the university or in the media or even really much in in society. Well, where I lived, there was. I lived in. I moved to Santa Cruz, California, which was like a little place and a kind of island where there was a lot of sixty spirit and counterculture people, and I became interested in these drugs. And so I went around, I wanted to learn everything I could about them. And and so I literally just went around to the people who had introduced them into the culture and you know, like I went to Harvard and I organized a symposium there and I got to know I went into Richard Schulte's office and Schulte's introduced me to Gordon Wasson and so the next thing I know I'm I'm sitting in Wasson's house. Now Wasson at that point in my point of view was you know one of the just t- one of the towering figures in this field he's the guy who quote unquote discovered the sacred mushroom and and uh, was a hobby of his and then he wrote about the role of the mushroom in these you know very highly respected scholarly tombs and about the role of the mushroom in ancient Greece and in and in uh, India and Mesoamerica and then finally toward the end in Christianity. And I was, um, he liked me. He welcomed me into his life. He invited me to live at his home and I hung out with him. And, um, and then a few years after he died, I wanted to make a documentary film about his life. And I got a grant from a foundation and the family gave me the copyrights to his books. And, um, and then I got this like the, uh, carte blanche into his archives, which had been um, bequeathed to Harvard University. Harvard gave me a corner office in the herbaria, and I had a secretary, and they would bring me trays of slides and things, and I was just like a sponge absorbing everything uh, you know, about Wasson. Well, at, at some point in this, in fact, kind <laughs> of funny, I was I was uh, Rick Doblin and I were still friends at that point and I was I was living in Doblin's attic during the you know, a couple months I would every so often I would come up to Cambridge and Rick would host me in his attic. And I was going through the Wasson Archives and I I veered off into um away from his mycological research, his mushroom studies, into his personal correspondences. And I started to realize some kind of striking things that, um, you know, it was always kind of an irony or is that that was that the psychedelic movement was introduced by a guy who was a Wall Street banker. That's really all we knew that he was a Wall Street banker and he worked for JP Morgan. Nobody really ever went any deeper than that. I I had a background in modern American history, and I knew a little bit about some of these guys, and I I, I started looking in and finding out that Wasson wasn't a banker exactly, and a guy in terms of a guy who worked with money, really. He was a guy that worked with public relations, and the bank he worked for, J.P. Morgan, wasn't so much a, I mean, it was a bank, but it was really a a very powerful political force, a, a fascist political force. And here's Wasson in charge of public relations, propaganda for the bank, like mind control, basically. You know, he was I found out later that he was uh, he was uh, an affiliate w- with um, Edwin Bernays, you know, who's a, another guy that serious scholars of this mind control apparatus will know or need to study.
0: Yeah. Edward Bernays. Is that right?
1: Edward Bernays, Yeah. Edward Bernays. Uh, An excellent film uh, by the BBC, The Century of the Self," gets into a lot of Bernays. But, um, you know, I found that Wasson was like drinking buddies with people like Alan Dulles Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and and George Kennan. We'll just stop at those two for a second because, again, students of American history will know Alan Dulles. Well, you know, Alan Dulles is not exactly a terrific guy. He was one of the first uh, directors of the CIA before he was a director of the CIA, he was a um, uh, manager of a, a bank or something that was in charge of investing the money of the Third Reich in American Wall Street. You know, he's basically like a banker for Hitler. And um, and he, then he helped set up the CIA, and he helped um, pave the way for Nazi war criminals, quite a uh, many of them, we really don't know, to come to sort of secretly, even Nazis that were convicted at Nuremberg for war crimes and things, found a way to sneak them back into this country so the Third Reich could resume their globalist agenda under the guise of fighting communism. And this was, is this was Wasson, and Alan Dulles also started MKUltra. And I thought, hmm, that's kind of interesting and a little bit disturbing. And then a few mm-hmm. years later, see, okay, so the anniversary of this article, Lawson goes down to Mexico and discovers Maria Sabina, this Mazatec curandera, and and has this mushroom experience and writes about it in Life magazine. And suddenly, you know, a million readers, I don't know how many people read Life magazine, but it was the most popular periodical in America. Suddenly, this is like news. There's this magic mushroom. And we were first told that this article was just like a human interest story. This banker had a little hobby studying mushrooms, and, you know, on his days off, he studied mushrooms, and then on a vacation, he went to Mexico and then told this story, and, and now it's really exciting. But that's not the... Oh, oh. and the other part of the official story is that the, the CIA took an interest in this and they snuck in to his expedition and um, <clears throat> and Wasson didn't want the CIA to be involved he said and but they snuck in anyway and um, and this article got published and soon you know it begins to snowball and there's this all this interest in these magical mushrooms but that's not the true story at all a few years later, when I was um, still working on this, I learned, and Colin Ross is, a, is another name that serious students will want to underline and read his book about the MKUltra and mind control. Uh, Colin Ross found these documents that show that it wasn't an accidental um, secret infiltration of the CIA into WASD. The CIA was behind the thing from the beginning they paid for everything they paid for the expedition they paid for the for the photography they paid for the recording they paid for the publication it was the cia's mk ultra subproject number 58 and so we have to look now we have to step back and go huh here's the cia which is a, an organization that its that, whose charter expressly forbids um being involved in domestic affairs, it's supposed to be a foreign intelligence gathering operation. But here they are paying for this powerful psychedelic drug to be introduced into American society in this phony story. Now, what? Now, why is that? So that was a very big turning point for me because um, I knew Wasson. And um, we talked about this. I interviewed him. I I recorded this conversation. I published it in my first book, which um, I'm still very proud of. It's it's an important book, Entheogens and the Future of Religion, where you'll find this um, full interview with Wasson where he tells this lie. That was kind of personally offensive to me that I was now put in a place to kind of parrot this false story and deceive the American public, or at least my readers about origin of this psychedelic movement. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a human interest story. It was a CIA mind control operation. And that's where we need to really begin. Like, huh, why the CIA want to publicize this mushroom and start this new kind of faux spiritual movement. In the nineteen fifties, you know that's a. I mean, that's a PhD question right there.
0: Are there any res? Are any resources that that you could like direct people towards? Because I'm really curious. Because I think people automatically and understandably are going to be a bit skeptical of some of those claims you're making. Um, not to say that I don't believe you, but I would like to follow up with some research. Do you have any places that people can look at to sort of back those claims?
1: Yeah. Well. Uh, There's a a scholar who I work with, a very fine man named Joseph Atwill, who's, um, you can just Google him and you can find his website and you can read his, I think, brilliant and controversial book on the origins of Christianity called Caesar's Messiah. And um, and Joe has done some really great research on this, on the origins of the psychedelic movement. Um, So he's one person. Colin Ross is another scholar who I've mentioned. Uh, let me see, another uh, colleague and friend, Alan Piper, has written some monographs that, um, not about Wasson per se, but about these um, these very suspicious and disturbing uh, close associations of the founders of the psychedelic movement with ultra-right-wing um, groups in Europe. Uh, Alan Piper wrote a, a monograph called... Um, uh, Strange bedfellows is one, and then he wrote another one um, another one that is called the mystery of saint peter 's snow okay so so these are there are several books here i I'm, i've been thinking of teaching a course on this, so some of the reading would be as we 've already said um, stephen siff 's book uh, Asset type so that's that 's a little bit to get started and i 'm writing a book now with um <clears throat> a German journalist and scholar, Matthias Breukers, who is a colleague and a friend and was one of Albert Hoffman's closest friends. And so our book will be coming out next year, which is a kind of, excuse me, a critical appraisal of the psychedelic movement.
0: Okay. I would like to, yeah, I'm really interested in uh, researching some of that. Um, And and, I wanted to also follow up with this because you mentioned, you know, you used to be friends with Rick Doblin and Rick Doblin, of course, is the I guess the founder of Maps, and he's behind the organization. Um, and I know that the last time we spoke, you had said a few critical things about about Rick uh, and about uh, Maps. What what exact? Maybe this is like I don't want it to just be like gossipy or anything like that. I don't want it to be like that at all. But I just want to bring up some some of your criticisms that you have uh, for Maps and for uh, Rick Doblin in particular.
1: Well, yeah, it's tricky. Again, it's like. It's like going after the Catholic Church <laughs> I mean um, there are a lot of my mother there are a lot of really great great people who have fallen for the Catholic Church. They do a lot of good things they're 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 enthusiastic members of a cult that's really kind of <clears throat> sinister and debased right from the start I mean the higher up you go in the in the hierarchy of the catholic church the more sinister and more evil it becomes okay now rick is a really charming and um you know to some people extremely likable guy who has uh, you know got interested in psychedelic drugs and just saw dollar signs he just saw wow this is a really powerful thing this is going to be a way that i can make a fortune and sort of you know he, he himself sort of Co-opted the psychedelic spirit and turned it into his bank account, and um, you know, like one of the one of the um, one of the things that Leary tried to change in in society when he was active was had to do with the locus of the locus of authority, right? So in the fascist system. The authority is all focused at the top, right? In a democratic system, the authority is, is located within each and every individual. And so psychedelic drugs, who's controlling psychedelic drugs? You know, is it, is it something like in the American system where the, you know, in the Bill of Rights, the government has no right to determine your own privacy, Right. That's a right of every individual, the freedom of religion. And um, we see this at play in the in the psychedelic movement. And what what we were trying to do when we first all got together in the in the early nineteen eighties to try to resume systematic intelligent work with psychedelics, where there was a choice to make. We could either <clears throat> we could either question the Controlled Substance Act and say this is, you know, completely um, fallacious that individuals should have a right to explore this drug. Or we can try to kiss ass to the government and try to get permission from the government. And that's basically what Rick did. Rick sort of sided himself up with the government. He snitched out a lot of people who were working with psychedelics, MDMA in particular. He snitched us out. He gained favor with the government and the media. And um, the rest of us were, he got to control the whole thing here right? And why was he doing this? Well, first of all, for his bank account. Second of all, because um, he his loyalty was with the government, with the authorities, not really with the masses of people, right? He didn't really want to change anything in society. He didn't want to change the systems. <clears throat> he wanted to find a way to make those systems work for him and to feather his own nest. And that's basically what he did. And so now, you know, we have this, uh, You know, he's about to make tens of millions of dollars. You know, the media is congratulating this guy. Pretty soon, MDMA will be legal. That is, if you want to pay, you know, $12,000 to have four sessions. And um, it's not about bringing about a kind of anti-war consciousness or a more egalitarian society. It's about making yourselves feel better. Don't try to change the world, you know, just find a way to be happy in it. You know, that's kind of where, you know what I'm saying? Yeah,
0: I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like something that I've, again, kind of the running theme in this conversation is realizing my own, like coming into my own awareness. And like you have just just described as well in your own journey, um, it's like people are really, I'm trying to say this. Because sometimes when we talk about these things, we sound like a bunch of conspiracy theorists, you know, (laughs) like, uh, you know, all these elite are trying to control the population and the masses and try to get us to accept certain ideas and concepts and, you know, to go along with the flow. And I'm like, you know, at a certain point there, you have to recognize, like, we all have our own ability to discern and understand what's kind of being, um, what's kind of unfolding right now. Um, uh, on multiple fronts. Uh, You know, I had an interview a few weeks back that was actually a pretty big pretty popular episode, um, with an investigative journalist and we talked about the uh the new climate movement and how uh they're trying to push for this, you know, Green New Deal and the uh financialization of nature. So there's like all of these uh these proposals and protocols that are being put into place on the global scale to push for a kind of fourth industrial revolution, which is in 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 and in, in, in that process they want to kind of financialize the natural world like all the ecosystems and everything the so-called ecological services will be financialized it'll be something that can literally be um negotiated or um bought and sold and traded on a financial market um you know for the benefit of perpetuating a capitalist system right and and for me like the same thing is kind of happening with psychedelics which is that the narrative is being spun by a group of interested people who, who whose interest is not into undermine the legitimacy of the the reigning um, ideologies and various structures that exist. Um, exactly. they, they have no interest in, in abolishing that or changing that in a real significant way. They want to keep this game going as long as possible because it benefits them the most. And so within the environmental movement, which has been largely co-opted by the nonprofit industrial complex, and I could say the same is happening to the psychedelic movement, which is being co-opted by, you know, these, the pharmaceutical industrial complex or whatever version of that there is, uh, to keep people complacent. And yeah, you know, we'll help you deal with your trauma. I, I personally sympathize with that completely. Go deal with that. You need to. That's important. Healing is important. But recognize that this trend, this popularity in psychedelics, is going to it doesn't it doesn't actually challenge the underlying structures that that traumatize people. It doesn't challenge militarism, you know? It doesn't challenge capitalism at all. And and so my whole thing now has been psychedelics are a valuable tool i'm not turning my back on psychedelics i'm incredibly grateful for the experiences i've had and i want to give people that information so they understand that but recognize that this exists within a larger context and unless you have that understanding and that framework to work within to like understand how these tools are being used to keep people complacent to a great degree um it it isn't really actually that useful at all it's actually working against us yeah
1: yeah, it's very well said, Patrick. But I want to just back up a little bit because you use you use this phrase, makes us sound like a bunch of conspiracy theorists.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Now you probably know, and stop me if you already know this, and I don't know about your listeners, but this is an important point. Mm. That this the weaponization of this phrase, conspiracy theorist. Yeah. That's a really fascinating and important thing to understand. Like You know, people think that this way, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you're wacky. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, that's a phrase that's that's used to demean or ridicule people who are looking behind the veil. Right? And if you know the history of this phrase, right, this was a phrase that was very deliberately engineered, invented by the CIA in the mid-1960s as a response to the growing number of people who realized that the Warren Commission's uh, explanation for the assassination of John Kennedy was complete and total bullshit. And so the CIA got together and said, hmm, what are we going to do here? <clears throat> there are people that aren't buying this. Well, they consulted psychologists and they realize that one of the most effective ways is to call them names ridicule them call them conspiracy theorists make that seem like a bad thing make it seem like they just don't have any brain and so this this phrase conspiracy theorist which has gotten um you know kind of renewed with 9-11 oh a conspiracy theorist and so I, I'd like to just kind of step back and really call attention to that, because really, um, you know, there, there was a time that if you were an attorney, that's what you were was a conspiracy theorist. That's how you're supposed to practice law and, and conduct sociology. I mean, all crimes are conspiracies it just means people breathing together more than more than one person involved in a crime is a conspiracy and so you come up with a theory and you try to prove it or disprove it this is the very essence of the practice of jurisprudence and so somehow that if you are if you are coming up with theories now I grant you, there are a lot of really wacky theories going on, <laughs> yeah, they don't have any kind of scientific or logical basis. There are a lot of wacky theories out there, but this phrase has kind of infected our culture, and people throw it at you all the time, like okay like they they won't say let's let's just talk about nine eleven for a second because i don't I don't know that you and I have talked about this the last time, but um you know nine eleven the official story of 9 11 that there were 19 Arabs that hijacked these planes directed by this guy bin Laden and pulled off this amazing aeronautical feat. That's a conspiracy theory,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. I mean, t- leaving the CIA out of it. That's a conspiracy theory about a conspiracy. Now, is there any scientific merit or proof or investigation into this theory? Well, actually, no, there isn't any. There was a committee appointed by the most likely suspects, you know, the 9-11 Commission, that tried to come up with some, you know, data that would support this conspiracy theory. It doesn't at all. It was never subject to any sort of legitimate judicial process. And yet, you know, conspiracy theorists don't say to people who believe the official story of 9-11, that they are conspiracy theorists. No, the conspiracy theorists are the ones who get, who get you get ridiculed um, because you <laughs> don't believe that. And so, you know, that's really, really important to understand. And let's see, who's the guy who, who um, I forget his name right now, who, um, you know, wrote a book, who found the CIA documents, you know, introducing this word into the nomenclature as a as a weapon, as a form of ridicule. So it's really important if you hear a person, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. Well, okay, yeah, it is. But um, let's look at what what you really mean by that accusation. Yeah. that's important.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree. I think the the thing that I'm getting very like. Uh... Like trying to navigate this world that we're in of information where, so so like, to, for instance, uh, the, the label conspiracy theory or conspiracy, whatever, it gets thrown at anybody, again, who questions often the, the narratives that are being told to us. The official narrative, right, um, that's sanctioned by the government or the corporate press or whatever. Um, one could argue that the, you know, this whole Russia, fixation on Russia, um, you know, meddling with U.S. elections is, is a conspiracy theory. But it's an official narrative that the Democratic Party and those that are associated with it and the the liberal so-called liberal media, they've been pushing this idea. And they have their own reasons. There are all kinds of reasons. A lot of it's just for financial, like, profit motive. You know, they, it's a story that keeps on giving. Um, and then, of course, the Mueller report comes out, and it doesn 't really indicate too much at least that the Russians really had that big of an influence i mean they they certainly tried to influence some people 's opinions, but it definitely wasn 't this grand hacking conspiracy that hacked our democracy. I mean, you want to look at actual influential parties i mean it wasn 't the Russians; it was more like you know Saudi Arabia and Israel has more influence on American elections than than uh, than than Russia ever could. Um, Let
1: me just stop stop you here for a second, because you mentioned Israel, and there there was a a really important, I've been been putting this out on my Facebook page, but a a really important article in the, uh, I believe it was the Jerusalem Post, that these uh, so-called Russians that have been involved with Trump, first of all, it's more complicated, like there were Russians who... Uh, made uh, shady real estate and money laundering sort of deals with Trump before he was running for president. Yes, these Russians, but they're Russian Israelis. They're really Israelis. You know, they're dual citizens, and they're and they're deeply in cahoots with uh, you know the Israeli right wing and the Israeli mafia and Israeli Mossad. You never see that in the American press. But I thought, but to the great credit of the Jerusalem Post, you know, there's an article in there, the countless Israeli connections in Mueller's Russian probe. So that's really important. That's one part of all this, you know, you know, Americans, especially my generation, I'm 62. We were programmed when we were little kids to hate and fear the Russians. You know, there was a whole, there was a whole, mind control program. When I was in first and second, maybe up to third grade, we'd have fire drills, but we'd also have air raid drills. When this high pitched siren went off, you know, when it was a fire drill, we'd hold hands and go outside. When it was an air raid drill, we had to hold hands and go down and hide in the basement of the school because we were preparing for a nuclear war, that there were Russians and they were trying to kill us. And that this was like, you know, still we. I talk with my friends. I, you know, we still have this thing like communism and the Russians and they're so nasty. You know, they're killers and they're. Go- we were so programmed and brainwashed with this Russian meme it was very very easy for them to pull it out again and make us hate and fear the Russians. They're messing with us. The Russians this and the Russians that. You know, it's all this Cold War bullshit. It was bullshit from the start. You know, the Russians weren't trying to take over the world. That was a manufactured meme to justify the buildup of the American military. And who's one of the, you know, really significant um, social engineers in this program back in the 50s? <clears throat> I mentioned before, also, one, Gordon Wasson's best friend, this guy George Kennan, who kind of cooked up this whole idea of, um, of the Cold War. To justify, you know, Americans throwing all their taxes at building up this military again, so they could it was basically the Third Reich's military being built up again to take over the world through this concept of American exceptionalism. The Russians were bad; the Americans were great. You know, as simple as that. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's one. Now jumping back into the future, into the present, with what's going on with Trump. And these and the Russian conspiracy. Well, it's two parts. Yeah, Trump was Trump is a doofus. Come on, you know, isn't that <laughs> obvious? Yeah, and he was involved in all kinds of shady real estate deals with Israelis in the in the um, you know years prior to his being selected as the president. That's one thing. But then there's this thing about the emails and that the Russians hacked the the DNC and expose these emails that cause, you know, this shift of voters to go away from Hillary Clinton and on. Well, the Russians didn't hack any, any computers of the DNC. You know, people that have really looked at this realize that that um, those emails were leaked to, the, to WikiLeaks by a guy named Seth Rich, who was a Democratic Party insider. You know, that's the story. So Mueller said, yeah, there wasn't any hacking going on. And now that now the thing has shifted. Well, you know, Trump is involved with Russian bankers, Russian, Israeli. They don't say Israeli, but Russian bankers. He's a corrupt slob. Yeah, well, we knew that. Well, what happened to the email thing? Oh, you know, that's like not even really part of the story anymore. And I, you know, I get called a conspiracy theorist because I look. Have you ever read those emails? Do You know, it's in those emails that were leaked.
0: It's crazy. It's crazy stuff. You know,
1: it's it's the most hideous problem in the history of the United States, to my estimation. You know, this thing that got kind of marginalized as uh, as Pizzagate. You know, these crazy, unbelievable things that there's a you know a pedophile sex cult in the upper echelon of the Democratic Party. (laughs) Well, all you have to do is read those emails. And, you, and nobody reads them. They just listen to what the media says about them. But when you actually read those emails and you understand that the FBI fully understands that pedophile cults use a coded language, pizza, dominoes, handkerchiefs, they have all these words that refer to different aspects of child abuse. They're all through these emails. That is what's going on. And it's, and it's like too unbelievable and too horrible to really wrap your mind around. So it's just, it's very easy to dismiss as some sort of wacky right wing, you know, reason to get Trump in there. It's not, that's not the case at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't speak on the, the Russia, the, uh, excuse me, the Pizzagate thing. I can't speak on that at all. Um, and I don't know how to, I don't know what to make of those, that weird, the cryptic language either. Um, I, I, and I, I guess my main point that I was, I guess, trying to say was, but yeah, you mentioned like using that term conspiracy theorist is used to deride any sort of critical analysis of these systems and propaganda and all of that. Um, and anybody questioning the official narrative of a lot of these big events. Um, and I would also say that, um, that the, the issue of course is that that line, and I've seen this that line between being critical and thinking critically, and maybe adopting unpopular views. That that line can blur between uh, really, like I think it's actually pretty fascinating when people research conspiracy theory and conspiracy theory. When I say conspiracy theorists, I mean the the real wacky. Ideas, You know, like some of the people that uh, are, are, uh, you know, kind of gravitate towards someone like an Alex Jones type figure Um, and these sort of right wing groups that use language and make up ideas and say things that I don't think are true. They're, they're complete nonsense and bullshit and actually are harmful to other people. Like I think what Alex Jones said about Sandy Hook and the way that his followers, those people that were listening to him, they did actually harass the parents and the people that were connected to what happened at Sandy Hook. Like I I see like that, that line, because we live in this weird age of, of instantaneous communication and information that is often, um, you know, molded and funneled through different, um, social media algorithms it it creates all these weird uh phenomena you know that i don't even think social media companies are fully in control of at this point they don't fully understand what they're even doing or participating in but the thing is is all these various people that that seemingly don't have any real connection with one another are getting lumped in and like certain people are like alex jones followers or Infowar followers and they believe that this and this thing was a conspiracy or a false flag and you're like no 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 i don't think so and then and then those people get lumped in with other people who are like you or maybe me that's like I'm a little skeptical about what actually happened here. I'm a little skeptical of the official narrative. I'm skeptical about the the, the you know the real reality that there are elites that have control over certain things and they want to they want to direct people's attention and behavior in a certain way. That isn't that isn't really conspiracy theory or or in the sense we're using the word now, the conspiracy theory in the way that we've come to understand it. That's just analyzing the actual nitty gritty details you know like you said do people actually read those emails from the dnc leak you know do people actually understand what's being uh, expressed in those emails like uh, you know people don't even want to acknowledge that even the you know to get to get away from the whole pizzagate thing people don't even want to acknowledge because they believe this narrative that it was hacked and it was used to undermine the democratic presidential candidacy of hillary clinton they don't even want to believe what is in the emails, which show that the Democratic Party wanted to create a Pied Piper candidate, which they described as an individual they wanted that was uh, on the Republican side that was uh, you know going to be promoted by the media and was going to be given a lot of attention, but because they're so stupid and because they're so buffoonish, like, say, Donald Trump, that people would automatically vote for someone like Hillary Clinton. That obviously backfired. But th- those emails showed that, and people are still believing that um, you know, WikiLeaks and all of this is responsible for the, uh, the election and the Russians were responsible for how the election turned out. And I just have to complete, like, you didn't learn a fucking thing at all. It just blows me away at how well crafted these narratives are. And that if something is repeated over and over and over and over again, people forget what the actual details of those leaks showed. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me. It's amazing how easily, I guess, people are manipulated and And coerced in a certain direction. Yeah.
1: This is, this is the success of MK ultra, which is uh, mind controlled by confusion. And um, I mean, you just, that was, you you raised a couple of really important things here and I want to just step back and I mean, okay, Alex Jones, first of all, Alex Jones and the subject of conspiracy theories. See, Alex Jones is not a real person. Alex Jones is an actor. He's a guy playing a role. And what is what is his role? Like, I'm thinking of writing something about this, but he's such a lightning rod because you know when I when I say things like, in fact, there's a discussion on my Facebook page about this right now because I I'm one that's read these emails, and I. I know a little bit about through scholarly reading and um, legal cases about the history of pedophilia and, and child sexual abuse at the upper echelon of government and religion around the world. Okay, and this is a phenomenon. This is a, this is an awful, you know, scary and horrifying thing. You know, throughout history, child sacrifice and child sexual abuse—it's demonic. It's just. It's really hard to wrap your mind around, but it's a—it's true. It happens. It uh, happens in the United Kingdom. It happens in Australia. It happens at the Vatican. It happens in the United States at the upper echelon of both parties. You know, there's, there's a, a really important book written by a guy named um, DeCamp called The Franklin Cover-Up about, um, you know, kidnapping children and turning them into child sex slaves, and mostly focused on the republican party and the during the bush the the first bush administration there were legal cases you know there were a, a prostitute ring was busted in the white house you can google this stuff um and so i got into um some of this stuff when i heard these allegations and i studied it and you know i realized you know there's this this is going on and it's hard to wrap your mind around but it's going on these podesta brothers these guys are creeps look at their art look at their letters look at their friends um and so then then it gets in that now back to alex jones people accuse me oh you're listening to alex jones too much so here's here's my theory of who alex jones is and what his role is in this massive media mind control alex jones is an actor his role is to take these controversial issues like 9-11 or Pizzagate—I don't like to use that word—child pedophilia in the upper echelon of government. Uh, what was the other one? Oh, Sandy Hook. These uh, Sandy Hook. His his role is to take these controversial subjects and take a big shit on them. Approach them in the most obnoxious and flamboyant and and you know ridiculous way that. Nobody with any, you know, polite demeanor will go anywhere near him. Oh, you know, again, back to, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist? Oh, you're like Alex Jones. That's his role, is to marginalize these subjects, to keep people from looking at them. Who wants to be associated with Alex Jones? You know, just like, I mean, there happen to be a million people that, millions of people that like him. But nobody with any kind of sense of decorum or, you know, actual kind of scholarly or journalistic or legal merit, you know, wants to be associated with him. That's his role, is to help marginalize this. Now, Sandy Hook, you know, I get into arguments with friends. This is another one where if you if you look at some of the, the actual details of this episode, you will find that the official story is very highly suspect. I'm not going to go out on a limb here and say, you know, that nobody was killed because I think that people were killed, but that was not a real school. You know, that's a school that was closed down, and they're very, very suspicious. Not only Sandy Hook, but several other of these, um, you know, uh, very, very celebrated uh you know popular uh, popular in the media sh- school shootings and so on there many of them are very very questionable and you think like oh my god how can the government you think the government did stuff like this well the government does stuff like this all the time you know look at history look at this program that was that was inst- instituted in europe in the beginning in the 50s operation gladio or look at um or look at something called Operation Northwoods. Do you know Operation Northwoods? Yeah, I do. Okay, so these are these are you know we know these things happened or were proposed. Operation Gladio happened. There were shootings and bombings throughout Europe for years that were meant to turn public opinion against so-called communists and create this strategy of tension and fear and get policies implemented. And um, <clears throat> so it's not pulling a long bow to look at these, these shootings and see something like Operation Gladio being um, put into effect again and, um, and Operation Northwoods. You know, that was a plan proposed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the CIA to hijack planes and, and you know, filled with American students and tourists and crash them into hotels <clears throat> and blame it on Cuban terrorists. <clears throat> John Kennedy vetoed this. We can see the documents. You know, it's not like some wacky conspiracy theory. It's a bona fide historical, you know, understanding of how demonic some of our so-called elites are, and, what, and that they'll stop at nothing to attain their goals. And... Um <clears throat> I can't stand Alex Jones any more than I can stand Donald Trump, but it just so happens that some of the things that come out of their their actors, their Fed lines, some of those things are true and they're put in their mouths so that people stay away from them. And it's uh <clears throat> I'm thinking of writing something about Alex Jones. I was actually mentioned on his program a couple of weeks ago. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, but um, <laughs> okay, I'm get, but yeah, it's very, very tricky, you know it's really hard to you know keep your center and to be and to be truth centered in a world of you know what do they call this the post truth world, yeah,
0: yeah, that's my main thing is I, I I can't sit here and argue with you about whether Sandy Hook was a thing this this or that thing. I'm not going to go there because I don't know um my instinct or like my my gut response to when people say things like that is is to be like no i think that it's more harmful to um promote false ideas or these sort of these um again conspiracy theories uh these ideas about uh you know that this thing didn't happen because i see there was more harm in promoting a view that that this was some sort of conspiracy. You know, I, I don't know what to make of all of it because like you said, there are certain events where I, I've definitely been very skeptical of and been like, there's such obvious holes, like plot holes, you know, like there's such obvious things that just don't make sense in the narrative. They go up against the science of, of physics, even like, you know, we talked about 9-11. I could go on and on about that. And I don't like to talk about it too much on the podcast, but I have my own opinions on that. Now, what I've come to in my own personal way of approaching some of these subjects is that if I don't know, if I don't know, Then I just leave it there and I'm not going to talk about it because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So if somebody's talking about Sandy Hook being this or this thing and it was this big thing and I'm like, do you actually know what you're talking about? Are you just listening to what certain media personalities are telling you about it? And that goes for anybody, whether you're some kind of Democrat liberal who believes in the whole Russiagate theory or you are somebody who's, you know, listens to Alex Jones every day and you believe that, you know, there's some sort of, you know, globalist conspiracy that's sort of a shrouded, uh, verbiage used or shrouded words to describe basically what is a a sort of anti-Semitic Jewish, you know, cabal that's taking over the world. You know, like there's, there's a lot of room to go wrong in, in trying to communicate these ideas or trying to, um, unpack them. And like you said, you just mentioned that operation Gladio, uh, I looked it up. It's a real fucking thing. Operation Northwoods, real thing. Look it up. Uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which led to the Vietnam War, that wasn't a real thing. And yet people believed it was real because the media reported it as fact. And so it's exactly. like, how the hell do we navigate this? This is what gets so frustrating and why I don't like to get into the weeds or into the swamp, so to speak, of these types of uh, conspiracies because it just, I could easily take a wrong path or I could easily get caught up in some false information. I did that with the whole Seth Rich thing. You mentioned Seth Rich earlier. I don't know Mm. what to make of that. I don't believe that the Russians hacked. I believe that somebody on the inside took information and then leaked it to originally it was DC leaks and DC leaks, then shared that with WikiLeaks and then WikiLeaks released it. And that's, that's all I know. I don't know who was behind it. It's possible it was Seth Rich, but I don't fucking know. So I've stopped talking about it because I don't want to sound like an idiot. You know, I don't want to give people a false information. So that's where my line is now where I'm like, I just don't know what to say anymore. I don't know what to do. I'm going to try to talk about what I do know and what I can verify, and I'm I'm going to make mistakes on that road. And if I make too big of a mistake, I'll retract my positions and statements on that. And that's all I can do right now because, again, we live in the post quote post truth era, which is difficult to navigate. I I don't know what the hell to do. So I'm just anyway. That's my little (laughs) yeah, my little rant on that.
1: You're good, Patrick. You're good, man. That's you're bringing up because this does lead into. Um, you know, uh, the, the subject of epistemology and how do you know what you know? You know, and, and I'm, I try to maintain, you know, very strict um, epistemological guidelines, like how do I know something? So something like 9-11, you know, Well, I, I know, I started to know really because you can look at the buildings fall down. You can see the buildings fall down. And you, and as Bob Dylan once said, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Buildings don't fall down like that unless they're, unless they're systematically detonated. Okay, like that's just common sense. You can see that. I don't, then, but then there's other information that you won't, you know, this whole Russian, what, what information can I gather with my own direct experience, and, and a lot of these events, now we'll just go back to Sandy Hook, and what caused me to take a deeper look into it was, was um, you know, I watched, I saw a little video of one of the alleged parents, who was uh, this guy, Robbie Parker, who they, they fucked up there. This guy was, was going to give a talk about, you know, his son or his daughter, I guess, who was killed the day before. And it's very emotional talk, but they had the they had the TV, the video running a little bit too soon. And they they show this guy, Robbie Parker. You can Google this. Robbie Parker is like smiling and joking. And then, you know, he does this technique that actors do to get into character, like a kind of heavy breathing kind of thing. And you're like, you know, one minute he's smiling and kind of you know cracking jokes with the guys there oh nope time for me to get on and suddenly takes a few deep breaths and boom now he's in his character and he's acting this part and to my own direct perception i thought that guy's a fucking liar he's an actor and he's not even very good at it and that was for me like a direct experience looking in and then i started you know studying it um you know fuck alex jones but there's a guy and I forget his name. It's like a, a Swedish name, Hallig, something like that, and I'll get that name if you want to go into this rabbit hole. And he's a guy who was, um, you know, worked for decades in, in state agencies to, that had to do. He was an expert on school safety. You know, he, and he did an investigation of this. And he said, you know, this, this, they pointed to, you know, a couple of dozen things that simply just don't add up about how this was conducted. And I got into that whole episode a little bit, and I do not believe the official story of Sandy Hook. And I'm not saying any more than that, like you, you know, I'm not saying that nobody was killed because I don't actually know that. But I do know my own self, my own knowing that that guy, Robbie Parker, is an actor. That was a lie. And then you take that information, you look at some of these other guys, and it becomes very, very suspicious. And I know that's another kind of third rail. You know, it used to be, if you said 9-11 was an inside job, people would look at you like you were some sort of, you know, nut or communist or something, or the Kennedy assassination is another one, but... Who was it that said, um, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it tends towards justice? You know, now looking at these, some of these conspiracies over many years, you can see that, you know, people that like yourself, you know, the people who really study them, who really have a grasp of, you know, real evidence, bona fide information, they don't believe the government stories. There's a very strong negative connection, negative relationship between knowledge and belief. Like the only people that really believe the government's official story of the Kennedy assassination or 9-11, they are people, if you ask them a few questions, they don't know anything about it. All they know, all they know is what the media told them. They haven't books, they haven't studied it. The more you the more you know in a legitimate like epistemologically valid way, the more you know, the less you believe that's that's really important yeah kind of equation to understand and and to maintain strict epistemological guidelines for what you know and what you talk about. This is really important to you know break through this illusion, this mind control that's being that's being thrust upon us yeah um
0: i you know the speaking about the uh sandy hook uh actor or whatever i don't know what to make of that and so when i when i see things like that i i look at it and i'm perplexed right um and I'm, and i'm not saying that you are obviously there's more to it than that but my my first instinct now isn't to automatically disbelieve or to Doubt that there was in fact a shooting that took place. I am again. I, I I don't I don't know what to make of that thing. I don't necessarily even jump to the conclusion that he's an actor. I don't know what to make of it. And and also I want to say one thing is: Have you seen the There's a There's two part YouTube video that came out. Um, there was a deposition um, of Alex Jones because he has been accused of what is it defamation or I remember what the the exact legal. Yeah, their term, but 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 case. because of the families that were impacted by what he had said over years regarding Sandy Hook, and so mm-hmm. there's this it's a long video, it's like three hours in total. Um, but it's a deposition where they're the this lawyer. Is questioning Jones, and he's playing clips from his show, and he's trying to say you said this and this at this time, and you knew this about it, but you kept on saying all these things. And like you said, you know, he's just saying things. He's trying to provoke a reaction. He's he's basically taking a shit on the entire investigation into these subjects. But that that video really just demonstrated the the, the you know getting grilled basically by this lawyer. That like in my humble opinion. I think that lawyer did a pretty good job of of, dis, um, of attacking a lot of those unverified claims that, that Jones in particular was making, but also what a lot of other people have claimed as well uh, regarding the Sandy Hook incident. So for me, I'm not really that interested anymore in sort of questioning that narrative. It doesn't seem, I don't know, I, I guess it's too far-fetched for me at this point. Um, and again, I'm not. I'm not trying to challenge you particularly on that point. I just want to kind of claim my my perspective on it because I want to just say, like, I don't know, but I am going to kind of bank in the the direction that absolutely there was a shooting and kids were killed, and and I, and I don't know what to make of some of these weird things that you're bringing up uh, regarding the interview with the the parent and all that. I don't know what to make of any of that um people like to pass it off as like oh that's just what nervous anxious people do or whatever and i'm like i don't know that's a bit of a simplistic answer to that so again i just want to just default and say i don't fucking know um so that's all i want to say on that
1: yeah yeah Well, that's again i appreciate your stance your agnostic stance and you have you have a unique and uh well-developed psyche see a lot of people I mean, that's basically what I'm saying, is I, I'm saying that I don't believe the official story.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know what to believe exactly, but I don't believe the official story. And, um, you know, this feeling you have of being perplexed, that's an interesting word to choose there, because this will this will get into, you know, one of the most researched theories in psychology called cognitive dissonance.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: Yeah. And I don't know how much. I don't know how much you've looked at that, but I was, I was very lucky as an undergraduate to study with one of the, one of the um, primary theorists and researchers of this concept of cognitive dissonance, which is, as I said, one of the most researched theories in psychology. And most people are not comfortable with cognitive dissonance, that is, having two dissonant cognitions at one time, or what you just said, feeling perplexed. Most people are not, don't like that. So they have to they eliminate that. They will do something. They will they will perceive the world in such a way so that they're not perplexed. But I maintain that that being being comfortable, and there again there are studies on this, that kind of more highly developed people with higher self-esteem, they're able to tolerate a feeling of perplexed or maintaining dissonant cognitions or entertaining paradox. These are these are the more creative the more balanced, the healthier self-esteem members of our society. Other people, you know, like if you look at 9-11, you know, there's a, they look at those buildings fall down and they go, hmm, gee, that does look like a controlled demolition. And they have this feeling of being perplexed in their mind in these, you know, microseconds are going through like, well, gee, that would mean that the government is lying. That would mean... Oh my God. And it leads to this whole cascade of holy fuck. And so they, most people or a lot of people will say, no, that can't be. And they'll deny it so that they don't have that feeling of perplexed. And they'll go, well, you know, I just, or it's like, you know, a very important book written by, let's see, where was she from? I think she was Swiss. Uh, Thou Shall Not Be Aware, you know, a a book and an examination of childhood sexual abuse you know by your priest or something and people will just they will repress and deny that it ever happened that their parents or their or their priests abuse them because it's you know it just causes their whole world to unravel what was her name miller damn can't remember her name right now but anyway thou shall not be aware that's an important model for understanding what people do with that feeling of being perplexed and i i congratulate you for being able to tolerate it
0: yeah yeah no it's uh i I guess i haven't always felt that way but now i'm able to rest a little more in that contradiction and I think, especially in the time we're in, I mean, people are holding on more and more to these narratives. And again, in 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 a time of great crisis, I mean, we're experiencing crisis on multiple levels. I mean, it's like obviously happening on the the physical level where our climate system is being massively disrupted um, and our ecological systems on this planet, the life systems are are degraded and are to, continuing to degrade. So there's that element. Our political systems are completely dif- dysfunctional. They don't serve the population in any real significant way. People are placated with all kinds of different forms of entertainment and kind of trivial news. Um, and, uh, you know, and then you get all these really perplexing events that are happening more and more frequently um, whether they're mass shootings or terrorist events, or, you know, the government, like right now, John Bolton, the, uh, what is he? Secretary of Defense, I guess, or not, not defense. What is he? National Security Advisor. I can't remember what his position is anymore. You know, his attempt to throw overthrow the government in Venezuela has kind of failed. At least the last two attempts have failed. Um, and now he's ramping up tensions with Iran, just like, okay, well, that war isn't going to work. Let's try to get Iran. And uh, like all of these things are happening. You've got like Julian Assange that's being, you know, dragged out of an embassy and his asylum was revoked and he's being thrown into prison. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Chelsea Manning is now, you know, being detained in a, a prison for really just refusing to testify on a grand jury, um, you know, which isn't illegal, by the way. Um, you've got all of these things that are happening simultaneously all the time and people are bombarded with all of these really, traumatizing and, um, difficult subjects and people want to buy into these narratives. And this is the time when people really should be stepping back and questioning them. But again, we're not in a, most people are not in any position to do that. And it just gets fucking weird. And I, yeah. you know, somebody explained to me like this is a time when you start to see people act kind of glitchy. I liked the way she said that, like people are glitchy right now. People are acting very strange, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I completely agree. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, hopefully, your podcast will have many, many listeners because you are you are really good at this, Patrick. Thank you, and uh, you deserve to be listened to, and to and to encourage. You know who wrote that book? Oh, E. F. Schumacher wrote that brilliant little book with that word in the title, "A Guide for the Perplexed." Mm. Yeah, because it is perplexing, and the, and our rush to certainty is um, is being used against us. Yes, and and um, you know, I really I really appreciate the way you put this, and that it, it is a, a glitchy time, and and the economy has been tweaked in such a way that the commonwealth is so you know ever more controlled by ever by fewer and fewer people that. You know, people are just wondering where their next meal is coming from. They don't have time to, you know, question government narratives. Yeah, definitely. Been actually becoming, You know, you mentioned, you know, this whole, you know, the, the environmental crisis and how that's being, you know, heated up again. My girlfriend and I were talking about this the other day. Like, suddenly there's all this stuff in the media about the, you know, climate crisis. Like, holy fuck, where have you been, you know? You know, well, my whole life as an intellectual was based on realizing these things. You know, the first book I read in college in 1974 was about the urgency. People have been talking about the urgency of the environmental crisis for the last 60 or 70 years. This is not new information, but it's trendy now. There's like this knowledge swarm. Make yourself afraid that the environment is about to collapse, and you and you know, so you're going to give, as you say, you know, financialize you know uh uh natural resources and and um you know give all your raised taxes everybody give your money to the government so we can solve this urgent crisis oh so, yeah like the government that's what it's like the cold war all over again oh my god the russians are gonna bomb us let's give the government more money
0: yeah yeah
1: is a lot of crazy shit it is
0: <laughs> well we've been talking for quite a while um i i had a few you know like plans like ideas of like okay these topics i would like to to bring up with uh with with you and uh you know we ended up going into a lot of different subjects i did not expect to get into which is actually what i hope for so i'm really glad that you're willing to go down that path with me that we can kind of have this uh i'm sure there's gonna be a lot of people listening to this like what the fuck is going on right now with this podcast um (laughs) which i'm okay with um but uh yeah, Robert. Uh, so you you mentioned you're writing a book. Uh, you said that'll probably be out next year. So I'm really excited to uh, to get into that when it finally comes out. Do you have any idea yeah. when that'll be uh, out in the public?
1: Well, I'm I'm um, supposed to. I'll be handing in my portion of the manuscript in October, and um, I was told it'll be a, a February publication. Uh, it's coming out in German. Um, we are writing it sort of uh, as a response to Michael Pollan's book, who, you know, you know, a very small part of the psychedelic story down, uh, completely ignoring, you know, what is to me the, the deeper, more interesting story. So, um, you know, we're hoping that an American publisher picks it up. But Matthias has already established himself as a conspiracy theorist. He wrote one of the first, um, the first best-selling book in Europe um deconstructing the official story of 911 a really brilliant and devoted scholar so we'll see i don't know i'm just doing it i feel like as a as a social uh, responsibility to express what i know about this complicated subject of drugs okay. keeping you know yeah. keeping people thinking about it.
0: that's good i'm glad that you're working on that i'm excited to uh, to read that when it comes out um yeah, and I you know I just found you on Facebook recently, so I don't know if you want people to know about that, but I know that you're there, and uh, obviously you have other books that you've published and the work that you've done with like Timothy Leary and all of that. Um, and yeah, I would also reference our previous uh, interview that we did last year uh, for people to check that out as well, because we covered a lot of a lot of subjects in that podcast that we didn't really get into in this one. Yeah, um, well,
1: there's a lot talk about i do i do use facebook as um it's kind of a blog for me and i I do encourage people to you know hit me up on facebook Um, at some point you know maybe soon i'll switch that over to my own private website and blog where i'll have a lot more information for my own you know 30 years of research and archival material that i'll put out there and And so um, I'm glad you've joined me, and I look forward to um, a lot more interaction with you. I really appreciate what you're doing out there. Yeah, well,
0: thank you. I appreciate everything you've done. And uh, yeah, thank you for this really engaging discussion.
1: Thanks. Look forward to more, man.
0: Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week. And as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude, but take it. we